0: Hey y'all, it's Noxy. Thanks for listening to the Detailed Solutions Podcast. And now, a little bit more about one of our sponsors. Alex, have you heard about the Pain Assassins on Facebook? No, Noxy. What's that? I'm glad you asked, you wrinkled little booby. Pain Assassins started by a dude named Jason Bruno to where detailers can find the camaraderie that they're looking for without any of the negative trolling bullshit like other Facebook groups. Not only that, but they can compete with their work weekly, monthly, or yearly to win prizes. Oh, dude. And they make sick merchandise. So you always have fresh gear to wear.
1: Whoa. Uh.
0: Anyway, y'all want to check it out? Again, it's Pain Assassins on Facebook or Instagram. Check it out.
2: Welcome to the Detail Solutions Podcast. My name is Alex Russell and I am your host. Again, everybody, we appreciate all the, the love that we've been getting, support that we've been getting through the podcast um, from multiple different countries. I love the messages I've been getting on Instagram. So please, guys, keep that up. Please keep sharing, subscribing, liking the podcast. Um, you're, you guys are, are helping us grow. And, and especially now with the whole Spotify doing the year and in, in review thing. I've had a couple of people sending me messages um, showing me their year in review that we show up, you know, in their top three, top five podcast listens to. So that's awesome. Thank you guys so much for that. Um, again, MTE Orlando is right around the corner. I'm super excited. Um, I think it's going to be the biggest um, MTE ever. I think it's probably going to be the biggest um convention style thing, um, for, for the COVID era. Um, so if you guys are going to come to Orlando, January 27th through the 29th, when you go on mobile um, com to purchase your tickets, uh, use the code DSP 15 that's D for detail S for solutions, P for podcast 15, and you will save 15% off of your tickets, whether it's the expo days or the, um, education days. Um, so please and make sure you guys uh, find me when you guys are walking around, um, I'd love to to meet everybody and say hi and we're going to try and uh, record some little clips and stuff like that piece together and put a, put a podcast together off of that. Um, but with no further ado, I want to introduce my guest. Um, you guys have been asking me to get them. We finally locked him down. Mr. Jason Rose. How are you doing, sir?
3: Oh, very well. Thanks. And I appreciate you having me on your series.
2: Hey, I'm, I'm just glad you came on.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was quite the struggle scheduling it. Cause it it's quite busy right now. Yeah. But, uh, we slotted it in and here we are.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, it is early morning for you. So I appreciate you uh, waking up a little bit early. Um, so Jason, everybody probably knows who you are and if they don't, well, then this is going to be a great way to learn. Um, so most people probably know you best from Rupes right now. Um, even some people probably know you, even going back to McGuire's. Um, but who was Jason Rose before McGuire's? Like, how did you get into this? Where did you start? When did you start? All that stuff.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question, and and you you bring out you know the Rupes years and the McGuire's years. Those because I've been with Rupes for six years now. Yeah. Um, but interesting timing on that, when I made the switch, uh, there was also a shift in the detailing industry. So my, my following and the people that know of me, there's a whole group that's been, you know, the last five years. So people right. that have actually started their business in the last five years, it's kind of like an, a, a new group for me. It's a new, a new subgroup that I'm you know reaching out and touching as those new, new business owners. Right. come on in the last five years and that's that's and then, where I
2: fall into because I've only yeah. I've only jumped into this about six years ago now after I left the car wash so mm-hmm. you know I mean I th- think when I jumped into it you were right at the end of Meguiar's jumping into Rupes is when I found out about you
3: yeah so the you know the Meguiar's years and I was with them for 20 years oh, um, wow. beginning in uh, 1996 um, and you know, there's a whole group of people that knew me from those years, uh, and had I've had the blessing of being, you know, strong connections with detailers and trainers all over the world. So it was a really fun ride for 20 years with McGuire's. Um, but that's a whole nother group. That uh, you know, yeah.
1: That, uh,
3: but prior to that, um, I had a couple years of working in the distribution of detail supply, supply products. So I was in Dallas, Texas and worked a while distributing detail products to professional detailers. And it was the Meguiar's line then, um, along with a couple other lines. But that was my, you know, I cut my teeth there on, on uh, selling and being an ambassador of a brand and promoting the brand. Um, and that, you know, kind of got the attention of Meguiar's, I think. And cool. so prior, prior to Dallas, Texas, I was in Southern California. And through my college years, um, it took it took me six years to get a four year degree because I'm I'm slow. Um, <laughs> I think a lot but, of us are.
1: <laughs>
3: but it actually was because I was working full time in a detail business and going to school full time. That's why it took yeah. six years to get a four year degree. But so I had a twelve year mobile detail business in Southern California. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, and that's where I really uh, learned about detailing cars. And um, I I've told the story on other podcasts, but the, during that 12 year period, uh, the first six years I would describe as not very successful. Right. Um, and it was a lot of, you know, learning the hard way on things because back then I didn't have what a lot of you guys have now, you know, the resources you have available to you are, are amazing for starting a detailed business. Yeah, I didn't have any of that. So it was all trial and error and um, six years of struggling, you know, not being successful at all. Uh, But about four years into my business, I realized, okay, I'm not doing things well, I got to think of a different way of doing things and being more successful. And I figured some things out. And I would, I would describe the second half of that 12 year period, uh, you know, the final six years um, were successful business years, right? Yeah, but it took a while to figure it out.
2: Yeah, I think that's kind of Most businesses though, right? I mean, they usually say like your first six or seven years, if you can make it that far are the toughest. And then that's where you start seeing success. And I mean, I look at it as we just had our six year anniversary of, of opening the shop and like, this is our best year yet. I mean, we've had steady growth, but this has been our best year yet. And I feel like I'm finally kind of, Getting to you know the top of the mountain where like hopefully yeah. everything will just kind of be downhill and easy from here on out. um
3: Yeah, it's not so much. It's not
2: yeah. going to happen that <laughs> way. Yeah,
3: no, no, no. But <laughs> you'll, you'll but, get some new challenges.
2: Yeah, yeah. But you're right. But like you know, as you go along, the more you learn, the more you figure things yeah. out, yeah. the easier it kind of gets. I mean, the it might still be just as hard, but it just feels easier because now you've you've had that trial and error you figured things out
3: well and i wouldn't i would not wish the first four years of my business on on any new <laughs> business owner i and with the resources available today um you shouldn't have to go through that pain yeah. for the four years you, i mean that should be your learning curve really should be measured in months and not, not right. years now um so i really hope people aren't doing the first year yeah. <laughs> exactly
2: <laughs> um so so when you left and and got the job with with mcguires like what did you start out doing with mcguires there because i mean you eventually worked your way up pretty high but when they brought you on what were you doing um, originally
3: it was a uh, total entry-level um sales um, okay. and they they actually created a position for me because they didn't have one before. And I, I had tried, um, there's a story behind that about perseverance, um, you know, really working hard for a goal that you want to achieve. Right. Uh, I had discovered, um, three years prior to joining McGuire's, I had discovered that I wanted to join that company and it literally took me three years to make that happen. Oh, wow. It was a long road to make it happen um and finally i guess maybe i bugged them enough but they finally said (laughs) okay we'll we'll create something for you just stop calling us (laughs) right right (laughs) Um, but it it, the story i'll give you the short version of it but um the mcguire's family and and the executives at the mcguire's office in southern california they were my customers when i had my detail business oh wow yeah, so I detailed for the McGuire family and Barry McGuire and and the executives at the office, and I would gotten to the point where every Friday, every week, I, you know, I had a mobile business, so yeah. I went to the McGuire's office and I set up my equipment and I was there the entire day every Friday and did you know a bunch of washes and waxes and polishes and detailing interiors and whatever, whatever. Um, but one day. I got a page, and that, that should date me right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my little pager went off, and uh, I went into the office to to make a phone call to a customer, sold a job, and I came out, and all my rig was stolen. Oh wow! So I had this beautiful truck um, and fancy, expensive equipment, and everything. It just was stolen. It was taken. They they actually left. I have my pressure washer out, and they disconnected the hose, left the hose, and just took the truck.
4: Hey there, podcasters. What if I told you that there was a product out there that would knock out multiple detailing products? Not only is it the ultimate time and money saver, but produces amazing results and is versatile on almost every substrate. It can also be used in your home or commercial businesses. Genko is an all-around multi-cleaner capable of removing light to moderate water spots, grease, and grime. It's safe on surfaces including windows, door jams, paint, matte, PPF and vinyl, rubber moldings, plastic trim and ceramic coated surfaces. My name is Jennifer Turcott, and after 22 years in the detailing industry, I'm so proud to have a product that is helping my fellow detailers around the world and others. I've tested GenKO for more than two years before the final ready to use product was produced. I'm beyond happy when people reach out and tell me how much the GenKO helped them and it can help you too. To get your own, You can contact me directly or go to www.igocodingsusa.com. Contact your local IGL distributor or installer and pick your bottle up today. And don't forget to share your experience on social media using the hashtag #GenKOmix.
3: So it was devastating for me at the time because I just graduated college and I had, you know, debt. Um, I had bought this equipment on credit. I didn't have the cash to buy all this, you know, the truck and the fancy equipment. And I got my first education on, you know, insurance uh, because I found out that the the only thing that was covered on my insurance plan was any equipment that was physically bolted down to the truck. Oh, okay. But my biggest expenses were in in hand tools and things that were not bolted down. Right, yeah. um, It was a huge loss. Um, I had lost stuff that I hadn't even finished paying for yet. Oh, wow it was a heavy blow, you know, and, and not having your equipment, you, I mean, suddenly you're not able to have income. You're not working.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, But what happened and here's the beautiful part of the story is uh, Barry McGuire's daughter, um, Nicole, called me uh, a couple of days later and she said, Hey, I heard what happened and um, this is terrible. Uh, And, she said, "On behalf of the McGuire family, we we'll want to offer whatever whatever you need to get back in business and get going again. You know, a vehicle, equipment, supplies, whatever you need. You let us know, and we're going to help you get back in the game." And it was such a powerful phone call. I mean, I was in tears. I'm feeling it now. But the, what I realized from that call was I I wanted to be a part of that right. business. I wanted to join that company and I had been 12 years into detailing and I kind of felt you know, been there done that I want to I want to reach for my you know next level whatever right, yeah. that is. um so it was at that moment I decided you know what I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rebuild my business and I'm not what I want to do is join this company but at that time they didn't have a position and they also told me because they connected me with the national sales manager and that person said, "Well, you're a great detailer, and we love you, but you don't have the skills that we're looking for. Right. Which is the distribution skills and uh, you know some other skill set besides selling detail services. Yeah. Because obviously McGuire's didn't sell detail services. They sell right.
1: Products. Yeah.
3: So they said basically we don't have something for you, and besides that, you're not qualified." You're, you're, I don't want to say it this way, but that you're just the detailer. You, yeah. don't, you don't have the other skills we need, the distribution and sales experience. So what I did is I went and I went and got that. So um, I went and picked up, moved to Dallas, Texas, and there was a job there selling detailed products. And I started that job and every three months I would call back to California and hey, it's me, you have uh, have anything? I got I got distribution experience yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> um and it took about um a couple of years, a little less than two years, when that phone call every three months finally somebody said, Yeah, we we'll, we have a position we've created for you. So Nice. Moved back, moved back to California in 1996, and uh, um that
2: that's how that started. That's cool. So, this was a question I asked Aaron Knox last week when we talked to him. So, when did now that you're with McGuire's, like, when did Jason Rose become Jason Rose? Right, like, when did you go from just being Jason Rose McGuire's employee to Jason Rose? Des- helping to develop and design some of the greatest products that have ever been put out?
3: Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Um Yeah, I'm pretty proud of the accomplishments. And I have to remind everybody, although my name's attached to a lot of those products that were- Right, you were part of a
2: team, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was
3: a lead on a team and there was right. a lot of very hardworking people. So um, I represent a team in that product development efforts. But um,
1: it happened,
3: you know, I started out in entry-level sales in, in a territory in California, but I had quickly elevated up the ladder on the sales side of the McGuire's business. Um, so before long, I think it was two years in, maybe three years in, I was a regional manager. I had a five-state territory and four oh, wow. people working for me. I had a team of salespeople. Um, and although I really enjoyed the selling side of it, I I discovered I really enjoyed the product part of it. Okay. And, and the training. So part of the the McGuire's business model is to to do training and education. And so I really latched onto that part. Um, and I wanted to expand in that direction and for technical services training and product development kind of go hand in hand because they're all about you know they're all about the technical side of of products right um and i discovered that you know i had um talent and some expertise in, you know being an experienced 12-year detailer uh there there are chemists you know that that formulate products but have never detailed a car in their life you know right so what I discovered was I could be um, a voice that represented detailers in the development of products because there are certain things that as detailers we want in products. Yeah. We want, we want it to be fast. We want it to be easy. We want it to not be a struggle. Um, We want less cleanup, you know, those sorts of things that we want in the products that we use. Yeah. Uh, In addition to user experience, things like, you know, fragrance and color and, stuff like that but the performance side of it I could speak to a chemist and say look we we really need the product to do this ABC we need it we need the product to do this right and it was a fun dance I mean when I started working with the chemists and the development team I would always express what what we want as detailers and then they usually the chemists say well that's not possible you don't You don't understand how this chemistry works. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And I love that answer because I'm like, okay, um, but can we try anyway? You know, can we, can we at least try? Yeah. I know the chemistry is stacked against this possibility, but can, can we at least try it? And usually the chemist comes through and said, well, you know, we gave it a shot and it looks like we have something. So, um, and that's how it started at at McGuire's. (laughs) it was probably about three years into that 20 year run with them. Um, I started working closer with the chemists and the product development team. Um, I think it was five years into the 20 years when I got officially out of the sales side of the company. Right. And I was all about training and and product development after that. Um, and then as far as how my name kind of developed, um, I started to travel internationally. Um, so at right about the same time, I started going to the bigger events in in the United States, like the bigger trade shows and doing bigger training events with more more people. Right. Um, and right about then social media started, you know, that was right about when Facebook started and things like that. But it, I think it was my international travel um that really kind of broadened the awareness of of what I was doing
2: right Oh, that's cool Um, so what do you like more do you like training or do you like product development or is it kind of a mix
3: I like them both um, and I really I can't imagine now that I've been doing both for so many years yeah you know, 20 years at McGuire's and then now six years at Rupus. Now that I've been doing both for so long, I can't imagine, you know, not doing either one of them. Right. They're they're just so much a part of me that it's, it's what I do. And uh, um, it was one of the things in the conversation with Rupus, when I joined the company, um, you know, there were questions like, well, what do you really want to do? Do you want to do something different than what you're doing
0: at McGuire's and all that? Is your car detailing website crashing and burning? Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. You're putting the pedal to the metal, but not seeing the leads you want? Bingo. Keep your detailing website out of the danger zone. Yes, sir detailers roadmap is the premier web service for detailers you need to be doing it better and cleaner than the other guy now what is it with you we build punchy marketing campaigns and cost-efficient websites for detailers designed to get you leads and generate traffic custom built websites started just 99 dollars a month
2: i feel the need
1: for
0: speed. And unlike other developers, we only work with one industry. Yours. Stay out of the danger zone. Yes, sir. And cruise on over to detailersroadmap.com and see how we can push your leads into overdrive. Talk to me, Goose. That's detailersroadmap.com. Detailersroadmap.com. Roger.
3: I want to do exactly what I've been doing. <laughs> I want to keep doing because uh, it's it's my happy place. You know? Right. Um, and I joke about it a lot, but I tell my managers and owners that if, if you ever promote me into a desk job, um, where if I'm driving a desk every day, you're going to see me two weeks later face down with a gun to my head because... <laughs> I, d- I don't do it. I don't stare at computers and do a desk job very well. Yeah. I have to be with the products and the people. Um, and, and it's something I have to remind the people around me that don't, you know, don't put me in that direction. Cause uh, I want to be with detailers. If, if I was in front of a group of detailers every day, I would be happy every day.
2: Oh, that's awesome. So. Yeah. And I, I don't think you'd have to worry about that if they did, I'm pretty sure somebody else would scoop you up and, let you do what you want anyways. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> I mean,
3: and, and I think everybody should um, really look at what they enjoy the most and, and really make that the most part of their day. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. a living example of somebody, you know, uh, who doesn't work every day. I have a job and I get paid for a job, but I right. don't have a job. I well,
1: do it's, my passion. Every it's,
2: day. it's like the old saying, right? You know, if you, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Right. And, yeah. and that's the one thing I've always said, you know, talking to, you know, now as many detailers as I've talked to on, on this podcast is, is everybody has a passion for what we do. Like, I always, I always kind of say, like, I've never heard a detailer say, you know, like, oh, I got a case of the Mondays, you know, like, I've never heard a detailer say they don't want to go to work, you know, that they're tired of working, like, most of the times you can't keep them out of the shop you know they right. won't go they right. won't go home they, they love being there so much it's um yeah so, so yeah it's a it's a it's a it's a unique breed that's for sure
3: and everybody deserves that they should have a job that is aligned with their passion oh yeah you know? yeah
2: definitely um when was the first time you picked up a da and and what did you think about it going you know obviously you starting out probably with a rotary or being around the time of rotaries and everything
3: actually no um my skill set with polishing started in kind of a weird way and not usual way like most detailers. So, when I started my business, my competitors were all rotary users.
1: Okay.
3: I mean, every detailer around me for miles, whether it's a shop or a mobile guy, they all used rotary. Um, and when I started, I didn't know how to use rotary, um, I hadn't used any machine polisher when i started i was hand waxing hand waxing
1: in the beginning oh wow
3: but i actually started uh, technically speaking with a da from day one so my first polisher that i picked up and mastered and used daily was the cyclo polisher
2: the old two head dual head
3: twin 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 headed you know job and and i made a business out of that because i promoted myself Um, and every way you know business cards and flyers and whatever at that time um, I guaranteed no rotary swirl marks right and it was my calling card it was a it was the way that I built my business because customers were frustrated at that time with the other guys who were laying down swirl marks on yeah Um, and at that time the customers weren't aware enough they would call them swirl marks, but they just knew, you know, after the car got washed a couple of times, something didn't look right on their paint. Right. And I would educate them and say, "Well, that's uh, that's a mark that the previous detailer left on your paint." Um, yeah. And, and I would, I would tell them, "I'm I guarantee you that I can remove those and I won't leave those." And that's how I made my business. So I used a cycle polisher. Oh, from cool. day, day one. Now that tool technically classified as a dual action polisher and Right. and it actually was the very first bigfoot because it yeah. had a large orbit.
2: Yep. And they spun they spun opposite directions. Like one would spin clockwise, one would spin yeah. counterclockwise if i remember correctly. Yeah. Yep,
3: they were counterbalanced um you know meaning that the,
2: the yeah.
3: counterweight assembly was counterbalanced. So it also had the claim to fame that it is the smoothest vibration free running polisher yeah. and it still is to this day if you if you hook up equipment and measure vibration in a tool the cyclopolisher is still the smoothest running tool today right. yeah i i wasn't
2: a big fan of them um, my my first experience I, I told this story a little bit on one of the episodes a couple weeks back um so my, my experience, I started at the car wash. I, I cut my teeth with a rotary on a, in a car wash atmosphere and things like that. Um, and the car wash that I was working for at the time was, um, it was a a small, you know, couple of guys just owned it kind of deal. And, um, and it was, it was big. I mean, like for as small of a piece of property that it was on, like, you, you know, you kind of questioned how we were doing numbers we were doing i mean
1: Mm.
2: you know saturday and sunday mornings there was cars lined up down the highway street closing off one lane just trying to Mm. get into the car wash um and they eventually sold to wash depot which is um or was simonize um they used the name simonize so when they came in they took all our rotaries away they brought in these uh dual head polishers um they they got rid of all of our chemicals that we had been accustomed to using mcguire's mother's you know pro things like that and we were strictly using simonize um and to me that i didn't i didn't like that machine and i guess it's maybe because i was so used to what the rotary was doing i was so used to products that i was using right the simonize products didn't seem to cut as well we you know we couldn't get kind of that same kind of deal um and i always kind of talked bad about it but it's one of those things like like as i grow in the industry and i learn in the industry how you know it's not just the machine it's the pad it's the 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 chemical that you're using too i look back on it as like okay well maybe the stuff Simon Eisen was making wasn't the greatest at the time or wasn't yeah. the greatest for that. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I have a little bit of experience with it, but it was it was not my favorite experience, I guess I should yeah. say.
1: Yeah,
3: well, it is, in fact, underpowered. So, yeah, you know, the, 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 the design of the tool and the actual movement, um, I think, is a pretty good movement for as tools go. Uh-huh. Uh, and it is really smooth but it, it, it's underpowered so you, you know part of what you experience is the the lack of that tool's ability to go after um, heavier defects you know deeper defects or yeah. sandy marks or things like that it right. that tool struggled because it was underpowered um, but I think you know and then fast forward to today with the Bigfoot polishers now the the motor speed the torque the larger orbit. Now we're able to go after, you know, deeper defects.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
2: Detailers because of today's industry, because of local customers,
0: you need a robust three-year coding option. You want it to be a single layer application to save you time. You want it to be
2: extremely durable for daily drivers, but let's be real. Few ceramic coating companies have specialized in a single layer three-year coating option. Therefore, go check out HyperClean. HyperClean Tray is the original single layer slayer that has been outperforming five-year multi-layer brands since 2016. HyperClean Tray, buy now so you can over-deliver. Hyperclean tray can be found on the detail supply app. So this question's from Dave Fermani sent me this one to ask you. Um, but oh. I don't I don't know. <laughs> I I don't quite understand it. Um, I love that guy. <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. Okay, wait, yeah, okay. So he will, he wanted to know how do you think the the has microfiber pads compare to the McGuire's ones that you helped develop? Any similarities, better, worse?
3: Well, um, the microfiber technology and the fabric itself is, is fairly similar between the two products, but the, the major difference, and it is a huge um, difference in those two products is the, the substrate underneath the microfiber fabric. So what Rupus did is it's a, a polyurethane molded layer, between the fabric so the all microfiber pads have have two fabric layers there's the microfiber layer and then uh, on the tool side there's the the loop engagement material right and then in, in between is some some kind of interface um, and what Rupus decided to do and, and this was not anything I did I joined the company and they already had this developed Gotcha. Um, but it's every other microfiber pad in the business is uh glued or bonded together layers. You know, there's two fabrics in that interface right. layer. What Rupus did is that the entire product is is one piece polyurethane molded. So there's there's no glue holding layers together. Oh okay. It's all molded as one piece. Um, so the one difference is the durability is just off the chart. I mean it's just crazy durable as a pad goes. The other difference is the firmness in the substrate. So because of that polyurethane firm substrate, the rupus microfiber pad um, has the claim to fame to be the the strongest in defect removal. And it truly is. If you go compare any other microfiber pad on the market, the, the rupus one, because of its substrate and the firm backing um, it it will remove defects in a faster and deeper way. Oh, okay. um, now the downside, and where the the McGuire's microfiber pad has a little bit of an advantage, is the contourability. So um, the firmer your your substrate is, obviously, the the less it can give and contour into right, yeah. curves and contours, and and that's the downside to that design is that it just doesn't it doesn't mold itself or contour it doesn't yeah it doesn't go
2: around the the curves of the car as easily
1: right
3: okay yeah so those are the major differences i mean if you want if you want something that mows down defects on a flat surface the fastest then that's what that rupus microfiber pad does gotcha Um, the other positioning on that is it's really you know because rupus like many other companies has different pad materials so there's there's microfiber there's wool and there's foam right um, now the the reason to reach for microfiber in the rupus line is hard paint so the the harder the paint is the better that product works okay yeah so it's all about you know reaching for that pad on hard paint but the the microfiber pad is so strong that on on your soft paint or fresh body shop paint freshly sprayed paint yeah it can be too aggressive it's just too right
2: much. Yeah. i might have to i might have to try the microfiber again i i'm a big fan of the of the wool um mm-hmm. the yes. rupes, the rupes wool pad i i love that pad um but i i get a lot of um i get a lot of german cars audi mercedes bmw um with yeah. that that harder paint um so maybe I'll have to try the, the microfiber pad just to see um, how I like that different than using the, the wool.
3: Well, if you do, I have some suggestions for you um, because of microfiber, of, of all the materials available in pads, it's, it's the most finicky and it is the most technique dependent of, okay. of any other pad material. So my suggestions for people trying microfiber Um, First thing is you have to make sure you have a very thorough uh, way to clean pads. And the best way is the, the uh, compressed air. And if you have the tornador gun, that's even better. Yeah. Um, Other methods of cleaning pads can work fine for foam and wool, but with microfiber because of the fiber itself actually grabs and holds things and doesn't give, give it away very easily. The compressed air with the tornador gun is really the best and only way. You can't, yeah. you can't take a, a pad brush or, a, you know, whatever different way of clean pads. So if you're going to do microfiber, you have to make sure you have compressed air. And the other thing is your technique. So you really got to know what's going on. And everything that happens with a polishing pad happens faster with microfiber. Right. so if you're removing defects you're removing paint and where does the paint go it goes on that pad so the pad load for for residue management it's the pad load with microfiber happens in seconds right it's really fast so you just got to be tuned into that awareness and know that that's what's going on you're going to have to clean the pad more frequently and all that stuff
2: yeah yeah it's it's um I mean, when I, whenever I'm using microfiber or wool, air, air is pretty much my main way of cleaning. And it's pretty much after every section that I do, you know, mm. I take and blow out and then wipe that section. If it's good, then I move on. If it's not, then it's reapply, hit it again, blow right. it out, wipe it down. Um, and you're absolutely right. We, uh, I just did um, some train, some one-on-one training with Aaron Knox right before thanksgiving and um one of the things that he was training me on was doing some spot sanding and things like that and Mm -hmm. so we we had a hood and and he took some you know took brillo pad and went to it and he said okay you know how are you going to do this and I said well I would try to you know compound it out first um so we did a, a a paint measurement before And then I took some 100 and a Meg's microfiber pad and cut it down. And we took a a measurement afterwards and it was a difference of like 12 microns. Mm -hmm. Um, Then he did a section where he sanded it um, and polished it out and took out almost the same a little bit, I think a couple of microns less and yeah. so he was kind of teaching me, like, you know, sometimes sanding doesn't do as much damage as everybody kind of thinks. And, and, you know, he's like, whereas you're going with an aggressive pad and an aggressive compound and you're, you know, heating it up, you're taking a yeah. lot off. Um, so that yeah. kind of opened my mind to, to microfiber, too, a little bit, like be, making sure to be careful you're not cranking away too much on, on paint.
3: Sure, yeah, microfiber you have to short cycle because uh, it can ramp up, you know, surface yeah. temperature pretty fast. Um, yeah, but I totally agree with um, what Aaron Knox showed you. the 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 facts are, and if you do the scientific, structured tests on it, the facts are: if you're going to compare a aggressive pad with a compound and aggressive defect removal polishing step, compare that to the foam disc style sanding. Yeah. Um, not the film disc because the film disc is a totally different animal and that will mow down paint yeah so the comparison is only real if you're talking about the foam disc type standing and and the fact is you heat up the paint a lot less and you physically remove less material yeah so those are the facts it's not opinion it's a fact
2: yeah that was that was another thing he showed me when I was doing it with the with the microfiber pad and and the 100 and he and he put the 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 heat thing, the heat temperature reading on it you know i mean i was almost cooking the paint i was i was close yeah. to like 120 or around 120 and then he did it by sanding it and then doing his you know heat cycle um kind of style of polishing it out and he like barely cracked 90 degrees um you know so i mean there was a huge difference in temperature between the way that i was doing it, had been sure. taught, you know, kind sure. of deal. So, so again, it, it, that, you know, that kind of opened, opened my eyes a little bit as well. Um, let's kind of talk about sanding a little bit since we're, we're kind of on that. Um, I know you, you do a lot of sanding training and things like that. And, and I know there's that video that's been, you know, going around that I think you did with Hawk um, uh, where he interviewed you on, you know, and you kind of did your what was it like your three things or whatever that, Oh, um, I mean, like
3: three, three, three trends in, in. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's what it was. So you were talking about like how paint's getting thinner and things like that. Right. So um, how are you, you know, feeling about, you know, cause I mean, sanding kind of seems to be like the end thing. I mean, I only went to do it just to learn spot sanding, you know, if there's a little yeah. nick or scratch or something that I could get out, but sanding whole cars with detailers kind of seems to be the thing right now um what are your views towards that i mean you know being a guy who trains sanding and and does it um is it just an ego thing do you think
3: um part of it is i mean there's always that you know shining thing you know the latest and greatest that people gravitate towards and this tends to be a trend i'm also aware that you know the there's a renaissance or a resurgence of rotary polishing Yeah, um, mostly with the new guys that got into the business in the last six, seven years. But so there's a little bit of that. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going with the the new crowd on the sanding thing, but the other reality uh, that I'm aware of is that based on what I talked about in, in his podcast, there was the three trends that are, scary trends that are happening yeah. with paint and every detailer needs to be aware of this so I'm kind of on a soapbox trying to spread the word um, because it's a train wreck that's that's happening all around you right now and you may not be aware of it but it'll bite you at some point um, but the paint getting thinner and thinner should alone be scary uh, but the fact that our tools and our compounds and pads are now more uh, efficient more aggressive we're, we're more efficiently ripping paint off cars right. than we ever were um, and then you combine those two with the fact that the average consumer of detail services is now more aware um, not all of them but as a group of, of people that purchase detail services they're because of the internet they're yeah they're more aware of paint correction and paint defects and and asking for paint correction services so those three trends together should be very scary because um, with the i'm going back like 10 15 20 years but the holy grail of defect removal for detailers has always been hey li- i i'm I'm looking for that magic bullet that yeah. you know rips out car wash scratches and defects really fast and leaves it swirl free and wax ready and coating ready all in one step, you know, Let the, the most efficient, fast way of, of, of polishing a car has been the holy grail, you know. Right. And I myself have been working on that for years. But what I'm trying to um, share with detailers now is that that can no longer, it can no longer be the top objective. We have to stop doing that. Yeah. Because if all of us did that, You know, if you if you think about the question if if everybody did what you're doing, what kind of environment would we have. Um, But if everybody was ripping off paint and defects and just mowing down defects as fast as we could, that means that every detailer is being set up for burning through paint on their next job. Oh yeah. So. We can no longer think, you know, what is the fastest way I can rip off defects? Our new thought process, I I propose, I, I suggest that our new way of thinking is we have to ask ourselves, what is the customer pleasing results that I can achieve, but leave the most amount of paint on the car possible. Exactly.
2: And that's, that's kind of what I've, I've started doing, especially now that I'm kind of getting, um, I mean, I get a lot of new cars anyways, like I don't really get a lot of hammered stuff to kind of do all these, you know, cool 50 fifties and, you know, before and afters type deals, I get a lot of new, new car stuff. And what I've started offering to my new car clients is, you know, especially if they come in and they're like, Hey, I want a coating a paint correction, whatever, is, is I just offer them like a medium cut polish kind of service, you know, and I, and I tell them like, Hey, look, your car doesn't need, you know, for me to hit it heavy with a heavy cut, heavy compound for paint correction. You know, let's just kind of do more of a, you know, rejuvenation kind of deal. Um, and, and let's try to leave, you know, as much pain on, on there as we can. We're, you know, we'll just go through and kind of make sure there's no defects, hit it light enough that we're going to, you know, some of the, the minor stuff will cut out. Um, there's usually not any heavy stuff. And, um, and that's what I've kind of gotten into trying to talk with my clients and explaining to my clients, like, let's try to preserve your clear yeah. coat as much as possible for you know even though we're going to throw a ceramic coating on there you know for two years or whatever but let's leave some for down the line when you might really need it kind of deal Oh,
3: and that's that's wisdom and that's awesome that you do that and i think more detailers need to do yeah. that I'm, yeah i'm aware you know as detailers go to my training classes and as i talk to them and trade shows and things like that they're there's like I said there's this whole effort to try and let's find the fastest way we can rip out defects and right and it's not all about that anymore we have to do what you're doing which is think about preserving paint thickness yeah yeah and and you know my
2: mindset again is has gotten that way by talking to you know guys like you and Knox and Fermati and Todd and you know all those guys that you know kind of given me the knowledge to be like okay whoa you know we don't need to go 100 miles an hour we can slow yeah. it down and take it easy yeah. and and everything
3: um do you Well, there's f- the other the other reality alex is that um um and i know you know this but for your listeners the the detailer's eyes on defects are tuned differently than the yeah. customer's eyes so the average detailer that has developed their vision for paint defects is much more tuned than the average customer. So you're a lot of detailers are actually going after target defects that their customer can't even exactly. see.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And and the same thing with the lights in our shop. I mean, our lights in our shop are designed to show those defects more too. And then you got yeah. kind of have to think like, okay, the client's never going to pull in my shop. I mean, I'm very fortunate here in Florida you know, the sunshine state, I can, if I'm having that issue in my shop, then I'll just stop and I'll pull the car out and look at it in the sun. And if I can't see it in the sun, then I pull it back in the shop and I keep going and leave that spot, you know, because I don't want to chase it and end up hurting things.
1: Um,
3: And then then there's the other practical question about, you know, perfect paint as a goal, you know, removing every single defect. Um, There's the other reality that, okay let's say you did get that paint perfect and the customer is super happy every moment that that car drives around in its life there's the whole environment's trying to scratch it up again
1: right yeah
3: so i mean there's the the practical reality of what a car is exposed to and why why make paint perfect if it's 24 hours later, it's now getting more scratching.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, if you're Dave Fermani and the stuff you're working on is just going to go sit in, in somebody's museum garage or whatever, well, yeah. then,
3: then then yeah, you know, yeah. Like you're perfect. Of Do course. It. Yeah. Of course. I mean, if the car exists in a bubble and it's not exposed to daily elements, but a but a daily driver car, I yeah. really question the objective of full correction. I right, believe. right.
2: I, as long as I can get a good 80, 85%, I feel like to me, that's a hundred percent plus for the client, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you feel that with the, you know, I mean, I don't know, I mean, I kind of feel like detailing's had a little bit of a boom maybe over the last five, six, seven, eight years or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, do you feel like with the, you know, kind of popularity of it, um, or the more people getting into it, that chemical companies are trying to make products um, maybe more user-friendly or easier to use versus, you know, kind of the old days where you would kind of have to, you know, really use stuff certain ways or, or be careful how you're using things like
1: that.
3: Well, one thing, Alex, that's impacting um, product companies, product manufacturers, um, not just, you know, compounds and pads and yeah. things like that but all chemistry and all tools what's hitting the industry is as the industry grows um, and you can kind of imagine this happening as an as industry gets bigger and more relevant then um, guess whose attention that gets government it's the government so what's hitting these companies and including rupus is regulation so yeah. the You know safety and health and transportation Um, there's also the sourcing of raw materials which is a big big issue right now because of covid Um, so all those are what's hitting uh, that business there's also at the same time this initiative for greener uh, products um, you know more environmentally friendly products right Um, so so, yeah, there, I, I would agree with you that there, there is an impact on the industry in terms of products used and companies, if they weren't thinking of it before, now they're being forced into thinking of, you know, safety and health and transportation and environment. Um, right. And, and I'm all for it. I'm, I'm happy about it, actually.
2: Yeah. yeah. Do you think something like that would eventually um, impact some of the, the products you know, like some of the things that you've designed or been a part of designing like the, you know, McGuire's line. I mean, everybody, you know, everybody, every detailer bitch is like, you know, all the M lines dust, they dust, they hate using them. They dust so much, you know, and it's bad for your health, breathing it in and things like that. Do you think products like that eventually might suffer from some of this, or do you think that there's workarounds that'll still be able to make that product what it is, but maybe make it a little bit safer?
3: Well, the as far as dusting goes, um, heavy-duty compounds, you know, strong compounds, um, they all have a tendency to be yeah. a little dusty, just because the the physical mechanics of of removing defects from paint is abrasion, and that abrasion happens from abrasives, and right. you know, it, the dusting is a side effect. Now, um, I have a lot to say about that comment you made that the because there are dusty compounds but i guarantee you that most companies at least the bigger brands they they're not sitting there thinking how can we make a product and you know make it more dusty
1: or okay that it's dusty yeah
3: none of those were intended to be dusty but there's two things that impact dusty compounds one is the the um uh practice of most detailers and and if if you're listening to this you've got to really ask yourself do i do i do this or do i not because my experience is most detailers when they're using compounds on a daily basis they will leave the cap open especially a lot of mobile guys they'll, they'll use the compound throw it in their milk crate or their little box yeah. and then they drive down the road if you leave a, a cap of any compound not just you know certain products but any compound because they all have a certain pantry of ingredients so every one of them has solvent water oils abrasives binding agents fragrance and color maybe Um, but if you leave a cap open the water and solvents can outgas and evaporate and then that product from there on forward is more dusty yeah now, was the product formulated to be dusty? No, but it got more dusty. Um, the other thing about dust, uh, especially with the Meguiar's ones, because I really know those products really well, um, there's cycle time. And I think detailers don't think about their application time in terms of the seconds. And there is a, a tendency for detailers to way over cycle. Yeah. The average detailer I'm, I'm watching i mean any of you listening if you just either pay attention to your own cycle time or watch somebody else when they're polishing a car and take your phone out and actually do the stopwatch thing and count the seconds from the start of their pass to the when they pull the pad away from the paint you know how many seconds is that and there are a lot of products that are finely tuned To be applied in in less than 45 seconds or certainly less than 60 seconds in in an application area right but what i'm seeing is a lot of detailers that are in the one and a half minute two minute, sometimes three minute cycle times and if that happens you're asking for a compound to be dusty
2: gotcha and and could that maybe be something of learn like know your products because i know you know there's a lot of products these days that have you know more i guess silicones in them or water or whatever so that they have longer working times maybe for those detailers that aren't paying attention so is that one of those things like where if you're using a product that's a longer working cycle type deal and you but maybe your next car you that's not working and you have to switch to something like you yeah. know, a Meguiar's line that's dusty, you know, I'm using finger quotes, yeah. um, that then you kind of have to have that mental clock in your head. Like, okay, well, this isn't a product made for longer working time. So I right. need to sh- yeah. shorten up my passes. No, you're,
3: exact, you're exactly okay. right. And I think, you know, in the, the companies and the brands are getting better about this, but um, I think detailers are slow to understand cycle time um, okay. and they, yeah. they immediately blame Dusty products, but, uh, and and especially if a detailer learned on YouTube, if you're sitting there watching YouTube videos and that's how you learned how to polish paint and you didn't actually, you know, get training and learn yeah. the proper way of the, the intended product application, but you're just watching YouTube videos, it's very easy to, to long cycle. Uh, and especially with these, you know, the conversation about dueling and uh, that kind of application method, it's easy to overcycle um, right. if, if, if you think a little bit is good then more must be better and you know look how look how good the paint's looking and all that but um, there is a thing I would love for detailers to be aware of and that is a lot of detailers try to focus on ingredients you know and then they to know products they think they have to know ingredients and yeah. then they feel like they know the product and that's totally false um, the reality is that you don't have to know what's in that bottle to, to use it the way it's intended to be used. Um, and I, I draw the analogy of, um, so Alex, we all have, have uh, uh, the cell phone, this you know, yeah. smartphone. Yep. Um, and I use it every day like you do and like most people do. But do you know the ingredients inside that little device? And do you know how everything works? Nope. I don't nope, but I use it a hundred times a day. Um, so I draw that analogy and tell people that we really don't have to know ingredients right um, But there is a moment in time I, I would like to raise everybody's awareness about um, the application cycle time and any product, any compound, any polish that you're machine polishing, if you can pay attention, to your application there's a moment in time during your application when there's a shift something changes and if you can identify when that is you now know the cycle time of that particular product
1: gotcha. and
3: i i guarantee you chemists have engineered into that product an, an ideal cycle time right so there there are long cycle products and there are short cycle products but I'll, I'll describe it. So when you start out with your compound on your first few seconds of the application, uh-huh. the, the product is thick and creamy. Um, you can't see through it. Um, it's spreading, you know, as a film across the surface. You know that right. that's how you can describe the actual material. But at some point in your application, and it's usually right around. 20 to 25 seconds in something changes and that thick creamy opaque material starts to get translucent Mm -hmm. it it starts to get thinner in viscosity and um, sometimes it actually goes completely clear yeah so there is a, that is, that it's a, there's a science behind that. It's called an emulsion break. And this is the time in your friction that you're applying on the surface. This is the moment in time during the application when the liquids and the solids separate. Okay. This is when, when your formula that you're working with starts to uh, come apart. Right. Now that should be the, end or near the end of your application when that emulsion break happens and you see the product shift from (coughs) a solid creamy thing to something that's now clear now at that point after that point it could go completely dry yeah or, or it could go to a clear translucent oily film now either way either outcome at that moment you should stop because if you keep going, you are overcycling that product.
2: Right. I notice sometimes <clears throat> um, you kind of get like those leopard spottings. And that always seems to, to me to kind of be the indicator that <clears throat> I think that, you know, like kind of what you're saying. Like I've gotten to that point.
4: Yeah. It's
2: time to stop, blow out, reapply, go again kind of deal. Because yeah. you, you're kind of getting that... <clears throat> it's a little bit thick, a little bit clear. So it kind of like leaves that spotting kind of look.
3: Right. And that is a visual <clears throat> indicator that your product whatever you're using um, is beginning to be, it's beginning to get to the end of its application. Right. <clears throat> and when, when the liquids and the solids separate, um, you just got to know that the product performance completely changes at that moment. So the cut and the finishing ability, everything um, goes sideways. So uh, I'm all about telling people just pay attention to your products, and regardless of what the company tells you, because there's a lot yeah. of marketing and a lot of you know fancy words and you know diminishing this and non diminishing that and this and that and you know long right. working times and all that. I would suggest that people, uh, yeah, of course, listen to what companies are trying to tell you, but pay attention to your own application cuz you're you're applying i don't know how many times on a car Yeah. you know what is it 100 200 applications on a car i don't know but it's a lot yeah pay attention to your own application and you'll learn about the cycle time of that particular product also in your environment cuz cycle right. time also an well, environment.
2: And and two, the paint, different paints are going to affect the way the compound or polish is going to react. Right? I mean, a harder paint, softer paint, it's going to work a little bit different. Absolutely. Your, your 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 speed of your machine. Not everybody runs machines at same speed. Not everybody has same same arm pressure, hand pressure, or whatever. Um. <clears throat> so another um, uh, question from from Um, And I think this one's kind of a good one is can you or will you explain the history of M105 and and, uh, 101, how those came about, how you were part of that?
3: Yeah, so um, it's interesting you ask about that because uh, we were just, my team and I were talking about this recently, even though it's not, I mean, it's obviously a Meguiar's product. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's a fascinating um, story behind that product um, because, you know, at that time at McGuire's, all the development happened in Southern California.
1: Okay.
3: that's where the chemists were. That's where the development team was. But M101 is a compound that was actually uh, fully developed in Europe. Okay. Um, And it... came about because of the realization that um, compound performance and compound preferences are a regional thing. There's no such thing as the globally accepted compound product. That doesn't exist. Uh, The Europeans, and even within Europe, there are different groups, but the Europeans use compounds differently than Americans do. Okay. So what became um, a realization is that, you know, hey, the best way to develop a compound for Europeans was to go to Europe and formulate there, test there, validate there. Um, and and that's how M101 happened. Oh wow. We we shipped the chemist <clears throat> and the lab over to Europe. Um, we spent a couple weeks there. We had base formulas going in. We kind of knew, you know, we've kind of 80% there on the formula. Right. Um, but the last 20% was totally dialed in by working inside European shops and formulating something, testing, did it work, did it not go back, redo right. it. Um, and it was also the, the match of the compound to the pad so a lot of people don't know this about M101, but it was completely formulated as a rotary product, and for foam pad cutting on, in a body shop on fresh paint. That was the specific objective of that product.
1: Okay.
3: Um, and of course, detailers took it on later, and now it's being used with you know microfiber pads yep. and D, DA tools and things it wasn't intended to be used. Right, right. Which, which, by the way, the dust, <clears throat> the dust that. You know, M101 gets a bad rap for dust, but what people need to realize is that you're using it in a way that the product was not intended. I meant
2: to. That's a good point, because I use M101, um, but I only use it, like, if I'm doing something super heavy, but you're right, I'm using it with, like, a microfiber or wool, and I'm using it on a DA and not a rotary.
3: It was never Um, intended for that. Never. That's cool. No,
2: when you said when you talked about different environments, you know, and and that's why you you took it over there and everything, are you talking about like, like heat, humidity, that type of stuff? Are you talking about just different environments of, you know, everybody's shop could be different than, you know, the next person kind of deal?
3: Well, there's um, environment in the broadest way that I can think of it um, exposing a product to an environment—it's really mm-hmm. two two things. It's the climate, and and globally there's four climate zones. And I've learned the hard way over the years that before I launch a product, I need to validate in four different climate zones because I got burned, you know, years ago with uh, M105. Okay. At at McGuire's, our our team got hit with a big challenge with that product during launch time, actually. Um, we did a final cross-check on climate right before launch. And we had sent the product into Phoenix, Arizona in July. Oh, yeah. You you can imagine what that is. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was hot and dry, about as hot and dry as you can get. Right. Uh, Three-digit temperatures. So anyway, we had sent that into our testers, and the feedback we got was, Hey, please don't launch this product because it does not work. Uh, which was the strongest statement I got back. You know, what do you mean it doesn't work? Yeah,
1: <laughs> because
3: yeah. Because <laughs> we we had gotten hundreds of feedback from people all over the world that said this is the best thing since sliced bread. You know, right. Awesome product. Um, please launch it soon. We want to buy it. All that. And then here is Phoenix reporting. Please don't launch this because it doesn't work. Right. Right i'm like what do you mean it doesn't work so i immediately jumped on a plane and went to phoenix and sure <laughs> enough product did not work <laughs> it was like 10 seconds into its application that it just imploded on itself oh wow and, and it turned to a big you know powdery dust of cloud and it stuck to the pane. and it was like what the and uh it was my realization that we had not fully validated in one of the four climate zones. So there's, you know, there's hot and dry, hot and wet, there's cold and dry, cold and wet. Right. Those are the four zones. And you have to, I mean, to fully understand compound performance, you have to experience the product in those four zones. Right. Um, so in the 11th hour, you know, M105 got, got an adjustment. Oh, wow. Before launch that's Just, pretty cool we had to make it work in phoenix so yeah. yeah the other the other part alex of the two parts of environment so there's the climate itself right the other part is technique okay and techniques on compound applications vary around the world you know so in asia it's done one way europe especially western european completely different way of applying compounds and and then Americans in South America is a totally different way, right? So um, you really have to factor in technique.
2: Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Um. So with Rupes, um, and and the you know I mean it's kind of somewhat common knowledge, and I, and I'm not asking you to 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 jump into maybe stuff you can't say. Um, <clears throat> but I know you know I mean there's there's plenty of knockoffs you know, the, the old, uh, you know, lookalikes, um, yeah. what, and, and I kind of know, because again, I, I, I've talked to Todd and I've been a Rupes user for six plus years. I mean, I kind of yeah. know, but maybe for the people that don't know, you know, and they're going out and buying these, these Chinese knockoffs and everything's. What can you kind of tell us about the difference in the in those machines and why Rupes is, you know, so superior?
3: Well, um, so there's two things to say about that. One is I'm really happy about what the International Detailing Association is doing right now. They've actually set up a special task force to try and raise awareness about... Um, you know, copycat, and and it's really the theft of innovation, you know, sealing product technology and duplicating at a lower price. Um, So I love what they're doing, um, because it hurts the whole industry when copycats come out. Um, Not only the company, the originator doesn't, I mean, it hurts them, but it it hurts the whole industry. Um, So I love that part (laughs) of it. But to get back to your question about the you know the differences so what there there's very very few true copycats um because if you look at all the quote-unquote copies of the bigfoot polisher yeah there are some differences in the wattage okay so they, they may have exactly copied the counterweight assembly they might have exactly copied um, the gear set and the bearings and all that but what they haven't copied is the motor and the brain that's in the tool.
1: Gotcha.
3: Um, What they've done is a different wattage because it's easier to do for them. Now, the difference between Rupus and other companies is Rupus winds their own electric motors. So we, you know, copper wire is how we start making our motor. We wind our own motors. Hmm. Um, The other companies, they buy an off-the-shelf motor and build a tool around it. Very very different outcome in a polisher, okay. but what a lot of these copycat tools do is they go to market and they say, "Look, the Rupus polisher is only 500 watt tool. Ours is a thousand watt, so ours is more powerful." Yeah. And it's interesting because if if you if you really knew what that statement meant and the and the facts about wattage. And uh, how electricity works in electric tools—it's um, an incredibly ignorant statement to make. You know, it's it's the same thing as Alex. If you said, "Hey, I got a better car than you because mine uses more gas per yeah. mile than
1: yours," <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah,
3: and that's what they're saying with this tool. <clears throat> higher wattage is not more power. What Just it is is more consumption of power,
2: right? Yeah, your, your electric bill is going up more. Yeah, yeah.
3: So what it means is that those higher wattage tools are in a, in fact, less efficient. Um, okay. Now, all energy generated, and this is interesting about this, um, all energy generated from an electric polisher has to be used up somehow. So what rupus has done is tried their best in the in the motor and the brain and the gear set in the counterweight assembly the engineers are thinking how can i get the most power to the pad right that the motor is generating so that's that's efficiency in wattage so it's a lower wattage motor but it's going to the pad because right. any ener- energy that's not used any energy that's not going to the pad has to be used up in one of three ways. Sound, vibration. What's the third one?
1: I don't know.
2: Sound and vibration were the two that I knew, but I, I don't oh, know. Oh, really. heat. Okay.
3: Sorry, I had a brain fart. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it has to be used up. So, so a thousand or a 1200 watt tool. Right uh assuming that the same energy is getting to the pad because they copied the counterweight assembly and all the rest of it yeah uh it's being the energy is being used up that additional wattage is being used up in sound vibration or heat right so if you're sensitive to any of those then there's a decision to be made about whether you want to step up to you know the the original more efficient tool or do you want to put up with sound vibration or heat
2: yeah yeah and i and i always think it's funny because you know a lot of a lot of detailers are like oh rupes costs too much i'll just buy whatever and when it blows up i'll buy another one and then when that blows up i buy another one and when that blows up i'll buy another okay well now you could have bought a rupes or two machines and they're not going to blow up as much and if they do you guys have an awesome repair facility um i mean shoot oh yeah Fermani Fermani just posted up a bunch of his machines and, and detailing for money that he sent in to get done and what they look like before versus after, you know, and how Rupes has cleaned them up and made them look almost new and and it was like $95 per machine um to have them done. I mean, you you can't you can't beat that. Um yeah. I've talked about on, on the podcast before. I'm very fortunate that um, the pro guy here is um a guy that I've known for many years he's worked on you know rotaries DAs and all that stuff so he just buys the parts from you guys and and repairs yeah. the machines um yeah. you know and it's it's one of those things like he picks them up on you know he comes by my shop on a Tuesday he picks it up fixes it brings it back the next Tuesday for me so like I have a shorter you know away time for my machine, but. I mean, i I love my Mark II so much because I'm not a huge fan of the Mark III. Um, that when the armature had to be replaced, you know, it was like two hundred and something dollars for him to get the part and do the labor or whatever. And I was yeah. like, I was like, well, shoot, I can't get any more Mark II's, so let's rebuild this one with new yeah. parts. Um, it was cheaper than going and buying a, a new one, anyways. New one, yeah. Um, and it was actually kind of funny for a lot of the people that, you know, kind of, you know, say, oh, you know, I broke a Rupes machine in a couple of months or, you know, whatever. I don't know what you're doing. I had my Mark II since the Mark II's came out, so that was what, like, four years ago or so, five years ago maybe.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and just had it re- just had the armature replaced. Um, like, not even a full year ago. And it was funny, and it was my workhorse. It was the one I used every day, all the time. And it was funny that when he took the armature out, he goes, He goes, this thing just quit working on you. I said, Yeah, yeah, like yesterday before you picked it up. I said, Why? What's up? He goes, I don't know how it was still working. (laughs) He goes, Your armature was worn Worn down. He goes, He goes, I've never seen an armature worn down this far before. He goes, I don't know how your brushes were still making contact for it to work. Up yeah. to the point that it stopped working on you, so I mean, well, to me, yeah. that's a that's a testament alone to to yeah. the the quality of the equipment.
3: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, the I have heard these reports where people say they destroyed a Rupus polisher in three months or whatever. Um, but I'm like you; I think of it as you know the the real durability is measured in years on yeah. on these tools because of the engineering. Um, but, you know, it goes back to technique, I, I think. Yeah. I can't, I'm can't. i not going to say automatically that it's user error that you've destroyed a tool in three months, but there has to be something going on. I'm, yeah. I'm with you on that. There's like something, and I do know for a fact that if, if a rotary guy, you know, a guy that's really experienced and a daily rotary user switches to the Bigfoot polisher, and if you use the Bigfoot polisher like a rotary, yeah. You could destroy the thing in a matter of months. So gotcha. it can't it can't be used like a rotary. It's not a rotary. Right, so. right. Um <clears throat> one last question
2: for you. Um how do you or what's your take, or how do you explain to people when when they talk about, you know, like oh the Rupest machine stalls, you know, it hits a contour hmm. and it stalls on me. I personally um, don't have a whole lot of issue with that. I mean, I just, for me, it's a balance. It's a balance issue. Um, figure out, rebalance the machine and, and I can get it to still cut and work through those areas and not stall out. Um, a lot of times maybe you're, you know, a little bit too much heavy on the handle. Um, so, so the machine's off balance. Um, but what do you, like, what's your explanation or what's your, take on that when people tell you that how do you approach it well
3: and i you know the way i think of things i'm not an engineer uh, by trade but i do think like one and um, and i apply science to that question and it's a good question because i think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the pad stall and the rotation stall of, yeah. of a dual action random orbital so the statements I'm about to make are true of all of them, all dual action random orbitals, especially large orbit polishers. But the science and the reality of the, the rotation, and this is the part that most people don't understand. And we as a company are going to do better about educating this. But the when the pad stalls, first of all, the thing to realize is, um, you know, don't panic. It's not the tool is not failed. And there's no, there's no error in the tool that the fact that the rotation can stall is the safety feature that's built into every dual action random orbital. It's, it is your friend. Okay. So don't, don't look at rotation stall as, oh, oops, there's something wrong because there isn't something is very right. And, and that is how these polishers are able to polish in such a way to, to cause less damage to paint it's because of that rotation stall. So first, first thing to say is don't panic. Something's not wrong. Something is very right.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, the other thing to realize about the science and uh, and it's all mechanical and physics and engineering. If you look at the pad movement of, let's say the, uh, the Bigfoot 21, let's take that as an example, seven inch pad diameter. If you do the math, on the pad movement itself at full rotation, you know, the maximum that yeah. it can rotate. And by the way, the, the maximum it can rotate is when you get your RPMs and your orbits per minute um, equalized. That's the moment when you've maximized the movement on that tool. Okay. Um, so the thing to realize about the actual movement is that uh, if you calculate the contribution of the pad movement of the rotation versus the orbit. So every dual action polisher has two movements. It has the rotation and the orbit, right? Now with these big foot polishers, a large orbit polisher, the dominating movement is the orbit. Okay. So we've done the math and at maximum pad velocity on the 21 millimeter tool, The outer edge of that seven-inch pad is the the most pad velocity possible on that whole pad surface. The maximum that the rotation contributes to the overall pad movement is 12%. The rotation at max is 12%. So the thought of, of, okay, the pad stalled, so I'm doing less work or no work. Like the thought of oh the pad stalls so something's wrong and I have to. What you're talking about is less than 12% of the movement. Okay. So the dominating movement is the orbit. So when the when the pad stops rotating, you know, don't panic. Work out that curve or contour. There's a reason why the pad stalled. Yeah. Right. Right. And it isn't because the tool is is flawed. (laughs) Yeah. There's a reason the pad stalled. So what i'm coaching people in my academy as we work on technique is when the pad stalls it's because you're on a curver contour and your angle and pressure is all off a right. little bit so work through that area because the orbit's doing the work yeah go ahead and work through that area get to a flat spot and then pick up your rotations again right um because there is a value to the rotation and you should always try to polish and have some rotation. A little bit is good. You don't have to have it super spinning around. But to answer your question, the the, the applied science to this question is that a lot of detailers falsely believe and assume that when you have rotation stall that things are not working right, right and, you have yeah. to, and you have to fix it. Yeah. there's this there's this moment where you feel like, oh I got to fix this because otherwise I'm not getting the job done and that's totally false. It's yeah. completely false
2: and that's that's one thing I've noticed. I mean like I said, a lot of times I, I can you know just re like you said just reshift the way that I'm holding it you know yeah. I'm angling it or whatever and it'll and it'll pick back up And sometimes if it's a tight area or whatever, I'll just do what you said. I know that my oscillation, is still providing some cut some yeah. performance well 80
3: so, percent of it <laughs> right so yeah
2: <laughs> so i'll just keep doing it and then like you said get to a flat panel pick back up my my rotation and then sometimes try to go back over and then you know hold my my balance or whatever
3: um so yeah now here's, that- a, here's another weird thing for you alex so okay. when that, in that moment here's another crazy misconception. So in the moment when the pad stalls, a lot of people will lift up on the pad to, to allow, they think, right. okay, I got, I got too much pressure or angle. So I'm going to lift up and let it spin more. Well, the opposite is true. If, if you're in that pad stall situation, push down a little bit more and it'll pick up rotation.
1: So oh, okay.
3: It's, it's counterintuitive, but right. try it. Yeah. It
2: works. See, I've never lifted off. I just usually just try to, you know, I, I always sometimes feel like maybe I'm, my trigger hand is pushing down a little bit too much. So then the machine kind of sits like this. So I just try to, you know, imagine if I've got the little, you know, level bubble on my machine and I try to figure out, you know, where, where it kind of gets back to level. And then usually sometimes it'll, it'll pick that, that rotation back up. Um, yeah. I got to,
3: before you close here, I yeah. got it give credit where credit's due so on the science side of actual uh tool movement for for large orbit dual action random orbitals my education and I'm 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 I'm, I learned things and I'm happy to share it and I just love people to learn but I learned I have people teaching me so um Marco Dinka the engineer in Italy or the big foot polisher he taught me a lot about what the actual movement is doing oh nice and then um todd helm uh he he's he's got a crazy mind for yeah. thinking through and doing the math on on you know pad movement and things so todd's taught me a lot about what is actually going on uh in the tool movement um, right, right you know in a lot of conversations with kevin brown about You know, tool movement uh, over the years. So that's how I've learned my stuff. uh, Just to give credit where credit is due.
2: No, no, awesome. Um, and I kind of lied. I thought that was going to be the last question, but I forgot. I've got the uh the extra bonus question, I guess. (laughs) Um, so whenever we, whenever I have people on from from companies, I always like to ask because you know it's always nice to get a scoop. And I don't know if there's anything that you can say, but does the has have anything in the in the pipeline that uh might be coming out? I mean it's been a while since well I mean I guess you guys dropped the uh the new the new uh compounds and polish and the, the new pads, but is there any any new tool development or any any other thing that maybe you have uh a little leeway to say on the podcast? The
3: answer is yes.
2: The other answer is you can't tell <laughs> us. <laughs>
3: Well, one thing to know about the Rupus team is that uh, we're always working on new stuff. So yeah. product development is like full speed, full gear all the time. Um, there's a lot of stuff being worked on, I can tell you. And I can tell you that there's um, things in the 11th hour close to launch. Um, oh, cool. We we backed out of SEMA this year, which is usually like a launch pad for right. new products. Yeah. Um, but that bought us a little bit of time. So our launch pad now is going to be in the spring. So you'll, you'll see some stuff coming out. We have been working on some amazing things um, both in the tool and the, you know, the pad and the liquid categories. You're, awesome. You're, you're going to have some cool stuff. And I apologize. I have to make that a teaser because I just am not at liberty. to. No, no, it's, it's fine.
2: I, you know, I know, listen, we've, we've had some people on that can give us some scoops and we've had some people on that are doing exactly what you said, that they can just tell us there's something in the works, but they can't say yet. Um, So no, that's, that's at least something cool. I mean, it gives us something to look forward to. And I mean, too bad it's spring. It'd be cooler if you guys could do it, you know, like in the uh, January 27th, 29th, you know, time frame, you know, MTE <laughs> Orlando would be pretty awesome.
3: <laughs> it would be actually, that would be awesome to have. I'm trying to think if we are, I might have hit me up when you're at mobile tech. Cause I'll be there. Okay. We might, oh, have okay, cool. something, might have something I could show you.
1: Okay, cool.
2: Yeah. I know. Cause usually, you know, Todd obviously living not too far from me. So I usually always end up bumping into Todd walking around MTE
1: and. Well, Todd to and
3: I, Todd and I at Mobile Tech, um, we have a whole series of different um, topics on the education day on Thursday. We're nice. Uh, we're going to be teaching a bunch of really cool topics and classes. So oh, I invite cool. all of you to come by and check out those classes it's so Thursday, is, the per- first day.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, is Rupez going to have a booth, or are you guys just going to be walking around?
3: We don't do a booth at that yeah. show because we have several of our key distributors Are that, here. Yeah. that work that event have booth. So what we've done is put our people and we're bringing a team of people into that event. Oh, um, nice. but, our, but our team is going to be like assigned to different booths. Um, so okay. we actually divide and conquer and yeah. not have our own booth.
2: That's cool. Yeah. Cause I think that, so the last MTE was 2020. um, and Todd and Alberto were there um, walking around. So it was yeah. cool to see them. I know uh, I know Jason Brennan lives not too far away and I know he's a part of your guys' team now. So it'd be cool to see him um, there again. So yeah, I'll definitely uh, let you know and maybe we can link up and, and get, a, get some eyes on something cool.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's definitely connect at Mobile Tech. Um, awesome. Looking forward to it.
2: Cool. All right, Jason. Well, listen, I, I appreciate you doing this. This was a, a lot of fun. Like I said, a lot of people have, have been telling me to get you. And I just, I felt like time wasn't right. Like I wanted to, mm-hmm. you know, make sure, you know, I mean, the, the podcast is year and a yeah. half old or so now, but, you know, people have been telling me to get you since day one. Um, oh, and I felt like you. you were the type of person that you know, if I wanted to talk to, I wanted to have my interviewing skills a little bit better. Um, so, So not, not that they're that great now, but I feel like I'm better enough that I'm talking to more people that are kind of on your level and, 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 gaining the traction or whatever i felt that it was it was time so i'm glad that you you know we were able to work this out and you were able to do this with me so
3: oh no good time you, you did very well by the oh, way thanks. Thanks. <laughs> really good. So i have done interviews with people where i'm like really you're gonna ask that that way I mean- <laughs> yeah yeah
2: no and, and, and again like i said i mean this is this is really you know the whole point of this podcast was really for me to get to meet people that I don't always have the chance to get to. So the whole premise from the beginning was kind of like if we were sitting at a bar somewhere, just having a drink, you know, shooting the shit kind of deal.
1: Sure. Um,
2: sure. So yeah, I I appreciate it. Um, All right, I'm going to let you go because I know know you got your day going on and uh,
1: thank you again and I'll talk to you soon.
3: All right, man, I appreciate you. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Bye.